Welcome to Dreamers to Leaders, Keeping It Real with Melody podcast. Melody is a born dreamer who started from being a flight attendant and worked her way up into now a tech fashion trendsetter, thought leader, and seasoned entrepreneur in multiple successful ventures. This podcast is for the awakened dreamer. Industry icons will share their humble beginnings up to the leaders they are today. Let's all learn and be inspired. Together, we can all prosper. Hello and welcome to the Dreamers Leaders Podcast. It's the podcast for the dreamers and more importantly, the doers. I'm your host, Melody. Together, we will explore how business leaders think, act, and speak big as they transition in life from being a dreamer to remarkable leaders. In today's episode, we will tackle how to overcome our unconscious biases to help us flourish and win in this super highly hyper competitive workplace. Joining us here today is Kelly Watson. She has over 25 years experience as a leadership consultant. She co-authored two leadership books, namely The Orange Line, A Women's Guide to Integration of Career, Family, and Life. And the second book is called The Next Step, How to Overcome Gender Stereotypes and Build Strong Organization. She is also a part-time instructor at the Executive MBA program at the Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California, where she also graduated for her MBA. She's also working on her PhD at the University of Denver. She is a managing partner at the Orange Grove Consulting, which is a women-owned business consultancy that specializes in research-based leadership development and removal of biases. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Kelly Watson. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So let's begin. If you could take us back to the time when you started and you stumbled into this career path of uh, specializing in diversity and inclusion in the workplace, how was that journey like for you, Kelly? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. Um, I was in a corporate career and, um, you know, a woman navigating through the ranks. um, And I worked my way to vice president by the time I was 30. And then I had a child and then another one and then a third one. And that really sort of um, derailed my career from a personal perspective, or at least my corporate world career. So I, I, I guess I come to it naturally by having experienced some of the barriers that exist. And then, um, you know, transitioned over and started doing this work with a colleague of mine who I met um, probably 15 years now and my business partner. And she and I, you know, were both really passionate about this, both had similar career experiences in corporate America. And we uh, just started working together and and thought, how can we solve this problem of women, 
you know, losing women to the workforce and losing, you know, voices at the top that, you know, are, are obviously competent and hardworking and, and all those great things. And so we just started collaborating. We did a study that we thought would, you know, maybe be a conference or something that we would present at, and it turned into a book. And, and then we started working together with companies and that turned into a second book. So here we are. <laughs> nice, nice. So basically three kids while working, right? So, um, <laughs> so, so how was that? How was that, um, that juggle uh, for you? Did you feel that you had more of uh, a struggle or a challenge compared to what your husband had to, to endure throughout that time that you were um, growing your family? Yes, absolutely. I, and I had, I will admit, I had bought into a lot of the gender roles. And so, and, and being a type A personality and a bit of a perfectionist, I, uh, I threw myself in with two feet on all in on the kid thing from, from the time I was pregnant, you know, and, um, and I think that that is one of the things that we've identified that helps derail women is not just what the external environment offers, but really women's attitudes about having children. It's, you know, I went from someone who was, you know, all in on career to being all in on two full-time jobs, essentially, um, you know, with, with the kids and everything. And, and there were many things that I just, uh, roles I took on that I didn't even question, things I did for the kids that I didn't even question as to whether or not would be important or necessary. It was just what, how it's done, or at least how I perceived it was done. And so when I set myself up in many ways for a lot of the barriers that happened. Now it was completely reinforced by having a fabulous husband who was so supportive and was saying things like, well, whatever you need, what do you need? And, you know, when at, when I wanted to take some time off, he was all in for that. So I think, uh, you know, I, I think that the barriers, you know, certainly there are external biases that happen for women and, and people who, you know, I, I, I tell the story that when I, um, I was up for a promotion to uh, director when I got pregnant with my um, first child and was getting closer and closer to maternity leave. And I kept pushing for my promotion. That was really, you know, something that, you know, I'd kind of gone through all the hoops that you were supposed to go through. And I was told, well, just wait and see what happens when you come back from maternity leave, just wait and see, cause you may feel differently. You may feel differently. And so then when I came back, I started pushing for it again and it was, well, you know, just give it some time. You've just come back, you know, you're not getting full night's sleep and everything else. And so there were, there were definitely external forces that were reinforcing you know, my own beliefs, but then there were my own beliefs that, you know, I'm the one who has to get up for all those nighttime feedings and that I'm the one who exclusively has to take the children to doctor's appointments and, and all of that. And really, you know, I, I, I think in many ways, that was the insight that helped drive our first book about career life balance is that, you know, a lot of it is questioning some of those gendered assumptions about what women are, are supposed to do. And, and, you know, I think if I'd said, if somebody had said out loud to me, did you go to college to get married so that you could stay at home? I would have said, absolutely not. And yet when you get there and, you know, you've got these kids in there and it is very demanding and it is very hard. You sort of don't even question, well, should I, should I quit? Should I stay at home? What's the, what's the situation? And um, I think I think that's part of the problem, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so you were uh, you're extremely lucky to have uh, you know, a partner that uh, supported you, right? Uh, throughout um, throughout all the tasks that need to be 
uh, addressed uh, during that time. And as we know, uh, being a, uh, a mother is a full-time, full-time career. So technically, there are two major, major things that demand so much of your, your energy, time, effort, and, and whatnot. And, and interestingly enough, I think there was uh, an article that, uh, that was featured where you were interviewed, right, uh, at the, um, I think it was the San Gabriel uh, Tribune back in 2017, where, um, where it also talks about uh, gender pay disparity, Right? And you mentioned how it is when, when a man starts a family, somehow corporate America would give that gentleman a raise. But if it's uh, the woman, conversely, uh, it'll be either um, a downgrade in pay because of that perception that, you know, the worker would be distracted or would be not working, you know, for, for the most part. So how do you right. think... Um, how do you think that could be solved? You know, even that unconscious well, it's, bias, yeah. right? It's more than that, right? It's that, you know, when when a guy has a kid, they assume he's more committed to the organization now because he's got to be the provider and that that's the male, the, the gendered role that we have for male is that he must provide. And um, so he needs more money. And a woman, you know, especially if she's a leader, it's, oh, well, wait a minute. She can't lead now that she's distracted because she's less committed. She's less embedded in her career. And that's because she's going to all of a sudden spend all this time at home. So it starts with that assumption. And then yeah. the pay follows that says, well, if you had a team and you were supervising people, we're going to take that away. Um, we, and, and a lot of women, of course, have bought into this. So then they, they kind of go part time and then, you know, they basically do the same job they were doing before, but they give themselves a pay decrease because they feel guilty that they're not working, you know, 70 hours a week anymore. Um, which is really silly too. I always tell women, don't take the, don't, don't take the pay decrease. Just, you know, it's okay to work 40 hours. (laughs) That's actually for a few years while you're getting yourself, you know, on your, on your plate. But, you know, I want to go back to that, what you were talking about, about the supportive husband, because I said that, um, a, a little bit in fun at the beginning that it was actually my husband's support and our double downing on the, our doubling down on the gender roles that really created some of our problems in the beginning, because, you know, it, it just sort of was unspoken that we were following these assumptions, mm-hmm. right. but he's actually come a long way <laughs> to being, you know, truly a partner in parenting. And, you know, he says it's because he doesn't want to end up in one of my books, but <laughs> But hey, if that's the motivation, that's good. But no, we've come along in this journey to where really he truly is a partner at home because he realizes um, a number of things. First of all, that we're both parents and that we both love our kids, number one, and career comes second to our family in both cases. Um, but he has an, a very high power career. He is a, a C-level executive himself. So then the question becomes, well, how do we get it done when there are two of us in the household that have high level careers? And his mentality is, look, that I am a benefit to his career because I am working because, I mean, we have similar organizational experiences and I become a de facto consultant for his business in many ways, you know, and, and vice versa. So we get the benefit of having each other as, 
a coach and a um, and as a consultant, where if that if I was not working and didn't have that workplace context, he would not have that experience to to bring to his employer. So he sees it as a benefit, but he recognizes that you know th- this this family life is uh, you know can be taxing. So he also is a big supporter in if if we don't have to do it, if it doesn't have to be one of us, then we're going to outsource it. And, you know, people will will balk and say, well, that's really expensive. But it really isn't because, first of all, it forces a prioritization. Like, is it really necessary? You know, there's a lot of things being done by women unquestioningly that don't actually have to be done. You know, bringing all the cupcakes to every single birthday at school and to doing, you know, just over engineering everything from birthday parties to um, kids' homework and everything else, which is created, by the way, a system of expectation out there now that, that that is what is necessary for a child to go to school and be successful in the world, which really isn't. And um, so, so part of it's a prioritization. And then part of it's also a reflection of the worth that this work is to us. And so if that means we're going to order food delivery service because you know, because the cooking of dinner is not something that either of us has the cycles or the energy or wants to spend the energy on, then we find it valuable enough to spend the money to get it done. Um, and it, it is temporary. That's the other thing is that, you know, the, the times that your family needs you come in waves. And then there are plenty of times when, when everybody can be independent. So, now it does create a little bit of, you know, everybody, everybody to their own in our house. And people laugh at me because we all do our own laundry. And that's something, even my kids, and as young as when they were in their seven and eight years old, they were doing their own laundry. They could throw in their clothes. And what was great about that is if someone left a crayon in the pocket, they were the only ones who suffered from that <laughs> consequence. <laughs> um, I need to start but, uh, I need to start my, my little boy in that type of training. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And they all know how to do it now. And I mean, even my husband does his own laundry. And, you know, that way he's not shrinking my sweaters or doing anything, (laughs) you know. There or are fading, consequences. Or, or fading oh, your white uh, white tops, right? <laughs> that's right. And I'm it, strangely the only one in my household who washes whites and, and colors separately. But, you know, again, consequences. That's, you know, certainly everybody was trained appropriately on how to do it. And they chose that that was not what they wanted to do. Um, people always, the, the one thing that's funny about that, I always get the objection that, well, you know, the loads would be too small. And I'm like, well, how it works in our house is people generally do laundry once every couple of weeks. So <laughs> the right. loads are the same size. <laughs> That's smart. That's smart. That's your strategy. So basically what I'm hearing, and I agree, uh, it somehow sort of, sort of uh, boils down to prioritization, right? And having that heart-to-heart conversation with, uh, with your support group, your family, your husband, right? And... Um, and outsourcing, right? Outsourcing what are tasks that are that seem mundane but are definitely still very much uh, essential in running your your day to day life. So, so those yeah. are and um, not make. I'm not allowing them to become invisible. I think that when things are invisible, um, there's no value behind them, and people think that they, it's just magical how things get done, right? So, but if you bring it into the forefront and have a strategic out loud conversation about whose role right. it is and going to do it now it's not invisible so at least if you've you've conceded that okay i'm going to be the one that takes out the trash 
that's great because now it's it's on the list of something that's recognized that you're doing. So I think that, you know, it's it's in many ways about just not accepting gender roles as as written in stone, having out loud conversations and then making the decision. Is is that worth it for our family to do? And if so, who's going to do it? Right, right. So you mentioned uh, the two books that you co-authored. So the first one is uh, The Next Step, right? Next Step, How to Overcome uh, Gender Gender Stereotypes, stereotypes. right? And How to Build Strong Organization. Tell me, what inspired you to, to write this book? Yeah, so this one is our second book. This is the one that where we took a lot of the consulting work that we've been doing for organizations and we just lay out what our process is and, and why. And I, I think, um, we, we do cover some of the stuff that we covered in the first book about, you know, women's assumptions and what women can do. But we also have a part about what men can do and then what the organization can do to really identify the barriers to women and, you know, in, in full, full inclusion for people of color as well. And what, how can, how can we remove them? What are the steps to removing them? Mm-hmm. So the set or the first book actually is the orange line, right? Yes. Why, why is that the title? Ah, because we envisioned in the orange line, a um, career model where, So the orange line is not really a line as much as it's a curve. And that is really that, look, you're going to sometimes be all in at work. You know, if you're an accountant and it's the the accounting close, you're going to spend extra hours at work because that's how it has to be. And then there are sometimes like my daughter was in the hospital last week, as you know, because we were supposed to do this last week. And you know what? That was all her. And, and there was not so much work. I mean, I was fitting it in the crevices, right? But, and so that's the orange line. And there are also could be times during your career trajectory where you take a gap or a sabbatical and you take that step back. And that might be because you're battling an illness or it might be because, you know, your, your children want to travel. I have a, a friend who took a year off in his career to take his daughter around the world. And she sang, you know, all over the world because it was part of, you know, supporting her singing career. And, you know, that's an appropriate thing to do. And, and if you think of your career as an orange line that ebbs and flows as needed and is a, a long-term career that does not end, then you start to think about these breaks or these things as sabbaticals and as an investment in your future career. And you think about, you know, getting an education, for example, so that you can further your career. You don't think of it as an either or on or off, you know, and an end. Because here's the, here's the dirty secret, you know, for, for these women who, who, you know, went to college and, and, and got on the right track, got an excellent career started, but then allowed themselves to get derailed by family is that that gap ends up being so, um, because during that gap, they're not necessarily thinking mentally like a sabbatical. They lose track of some of the keeping themselves up to speed with what's happening technology wise or what's, you know, going on in the workplace. They kind of check out. And then when they want to enter again, 15 years later, the workplace has no place for them. And now that's partially the problem of the workplace. Absolutely. But there's, if, if you had instead taken a sabbatical, the mentality is I've got to keep up my, my network for work. I've got to keep my mind 
engaged in in the industry. So you're reading things on the in, you know periodicals on the outside and things, and you're thinking of it as a temporary gap, not a permanent gap. And so I, I think that that's a big reason why the title of that book was so important and why our model in that case was so important. Mm-hmm. So basically it has been controversial where people are saying there's no such thing as a work-life balance because you really can't balance it to the degree. And your book basically tackles uh, the integration of uh, family life and career. What's your, what's your take on, on the work-life um, balance uh, situation? Yes. <laughs> Do you think that's yeah, a myth? That it's, or there is really totally. like I- a, a formula that you could crack the code and truly there could be that harmony in one's life. Right. Well, I don't like the word balance for that reason, because what it does is it puts you on a teeter totter with you in the middle. And, you know, the, the analogy of, you know, you've got to, whenever you, you know, invest some time over here, you've, you've got to give it up over there. And I also don't love that it's time-based, right? Because it assumes that all actions and all minutes are equal. And that's not the case, right? Like it, it, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes a little bit of time goes a long way, both on the family side and in the career side. So I like to think that's why we use the words work-life integration, because, you know, you never ask a man if they, how they're balancing work and life, right? Because it's just assumed they have a family. They have, you know, I had a guy ask me one day, I don't know how you do it. You have three kids and you work and everything. I said, well, how do you do it? And he said, well, it's different. And I'm like, well, why is it different? You know, that's the problem is the fact that we think it's different, right? So a guy just integrates it. He just figures it out. And in many cases, that's dependent on, you know, a wife who's doing an unfair share probably. So so let's tackle that and let's understand because if we can think of it like he has a right to a career and he has a right to a family, but we only allow women to have a right to a career if family's taken care of first. And that's a mentality shift I really want to want to change. Like we have a right to a career. We went to school. We invested. We actually graduate more women from colleges these days than men. And so when you look at that, you think, okay, so we did all that investment. We've certainly earned our our space at the table in this man's world. So why do we not then have a right to enjoy it and and peruse our career and follow our metier, right? Well, I think we do. And I think that the what the, has to shift is this idea that it's an extra and a, um, a you know, a, that's something you, you're privileged to get only if you've taken care of family first. So mm-hmm. um, men have to take care of their families too. And, and the longer we shelter dad from actual parenting responsibility, the longer this is going to perpetuate. And here's what I will say about the pandemic, because the pandemic is kind of, you know, it's a double-edged sword. On On the one side, it was a huge opportunity because we got to prove finally that you right. don't have to be face to face to get work done, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's and one, one, one upside of the pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah, we proved it. We've been saying it for years, of course, but now we proved it. But on the, the other side of it, what happened? Well, women left the workforce. They said, well, now we've got to homeschool the kids and right. that's too hard to do. And so we saw the biggest exodus of women from workforce participation since the 70s. And we saw 100% of the people who left the workforce in December of 2020 were women. I mean, it is astounding what happened. And it was like, nobody even said, I mean, they complained about it, but nobody said, is this right? Should this be the case? I mean, I honestly think that 
we're not going to get a change until the men have to do it until, you know, and, and if you were a person who said, oh my gosh, the kids are home, they're in front of Zoom, we got to figure this out because I got to go to work. It, if the men said, hey, boss, you know, I got kids running around the background, you know, I, I, I need this time or I need to work for six hours today so that I can look after my kids and take a shift from my wife, the world would literally change because they have the problem. But if we just absorb the problem, then nothing's going to change. It's just going to go backwards, which is what most of the media is saying has happened. So Kelly, you mentioned shift, right? Uh, so for, for many years of you doing, um, uh, of being a consultant in uh, gender equity and inclusion, in those two decades, have you seen uh a conversational, you know, shift in um, in the workplace, and where do you see this um, headed? The direction it's it's going to. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely seen two major um, leaps forward. Uh, the first is Me Too, and what Me Too uh-huh. did, and we found this when we were doing the interviews for our book too, is that um, before Me Too. What was happening was women were experiencing some barriers, a lot of barriers, and not realizing that they weren't the only one, not realizing that our sisters sitting at the cubicle beside us were having the same experiences and the same struggles. And because we didn't talk, we were not empowered and we didn't have, you know, creative solutions. It was, it was these individual battles happening all over the place. And we were sort of almost accepting of this is just the workplace, right? I mean, and and then Me Too happens. And I'll never forget, I ended up having a conversation with my sister, who's a major tech salesperson, and is just a fabulous, fabulous professional woman with kids as well. And I talked to her one day, we were just sitting down having a glass of wine together. And talking about, wow, this Me Too phenomena, isn't it crazy? And so we started storytelling and telling about some of the crazy things that had happened to us in the workplace. Like I used to have a VP of HR who would walk around and he'd massage the shoulders of all of the women at work. And we would see him coming out of the corner of our eye and and beeline for the bathroom where we'd hide, literally leaving our desks and our work so we could hide from this creep because he was going to make the rounds and he was going to rub our backs for us and everything. And, you know, it's appalling, but it was happening. And then my sister was telling stories of men who'd grab her behind when she was at, out at, you know, happy hours with them and tell tell her that, you know, she's given him a vibe, you know, because she's being social and and bubbly and everything. And I thought, how many? I didn't even know this. This is my own sister. We talk at once a week at least, and we have never shared these stories. So it gave us permission and it opened the door. And it and finally we had also some legal support where you know the perpetrators were being um identified and called out and 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 received some consequences. Now, you know, the backlash against that was, oh, now we're going to have all these women with their false claims and everything else, which, of course, has not actually happened. But that was the big fear that all of this was going to be, you know, nonsense. And we've pushed through, I feel like, a massive big leap where even, you know, um, 
in some of the work we're doing in organizations where we ask, you know, is there blatant harassment happening? And we're getting so few reports now of actual harassment, like blatant stuff. Now there's all kinds of microaggressions and everything else. That's another story. But, but I think that going from an environment where we had all accepted that it was a daily occurrence and that it was normal and that boys will just be boys. And that's, that's what we have to expect if we're going to be in their world to now starting to realize that that is inappropriate behavior and, and, and whether men are, are um, adjusting their behavior out of fear of me too, or whether there's been, you know, a, an increase in understanding that even innocuous behaviors like sexist jokes are not actually you know, helpful and appropriate in the environment, it's absolutely created a better environment and more empowerment for women in this environment. So then the second big move, obviously, was was Black Lives Matter, which I think has a lot of the same characteristics, you know, a lot of individual stories happening where, and, and I won't say that, that uh, African Americans weren't talking about the problem of, you know, police shootings and, you know, inappropriate behavior by police, but also the inappropriate microaggressions in the workplace. But I definitely feel like Black Lives Matter opened it up to where everybody was talking about, look at this, this is a problem. And this is a situation in, in the corporate culture that is unacceptable. And so what we're now seeing a lot of companies that are interested in learning more and finding out how they can eliminate these barriers in the workplace and make the workplace more um, inclusive by getting rid of things like microaggressions. Now, do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff still happening, but even there we're seeing a decrease in the amount of blatant, you know, um, sexism and racism and blatant, you know, people are starting to understand that telling an off color joke is not just, um, not is not a minor thing. It's it's a major uh, barrier to inclusion that needs to go from organizations. Yeah, just like with anything in life, you know, if there's a problem that needs to be solved, it starts with awareness. And I think with uh, with the Me Too and the BLM, having that awareness, now people would think three, 10 times, <laughs> three to 10 times more before they do what they thought was normal. Uh, for the longest time. So that seems to be a positive step uh, moving forward. Now, um, with all the positive things that that people know, a theoretically, and that we have already uh, kind of have seen from what the gender equity could do to the workplace, you know, how it could positively affect the, the economy, the employees, and all that. Why do you still think um, there's still some pushbacks and uh, or do you still think that there's pushbacks among, um, you know, the large corporations uh, in America, you know, whether it's passive or active? Uh, What do you say uh, on that resistance that's still around? Yeah, there's definitely still some resistance. I think that the pockets of it are are getting smaller, but I do think that there, um, and, and I think that there's a little bit of a pushback similar to how, when me too happened, there was a pushback from men saying, well, now I'm going to get falsely accused. I think that there's definitely, I'm, um, you know, pushback on racism, um, from the perspective of people who, uh, think are, are either threatened or think that there isn't a problem or thinks that think that by talking about racism in the workplace, that 
we're now stirring something up that wasn't, you know, that, that isn't really there. And I'll give you a, I, there's an excellent quote from somebody I was talking to earlier today that I just, oh, I want to crystallize because it is so, it's so fabulous. He said, the people who have equity find it, can sometimes find it very challenging to see inequity. And I think that that really speaks to what our individual experiences are. And I know that, and I know that as myself, I, I've certainly felt the inequity as a woman, but I have not felt the inequity of an, of an intersection like race or, you know, um, sexual identity or even age. I'm starting to feel the age one, but, <laughs> but, you know, the ageism or ableism and some of these other things. So my experience, while I can, you know, have empathy for other groups, my experience doesn't give me some of those mm-hmm. insights. And so it's, it's really easy to dismiss somebody else's experience when, when you don't have that experience. And so I, I think that, um, that that barrier, and, and then of course, you know, we've got a political climate that's really sort of, you know, capitalizing, I will say that on both ends of the spectrum, capitalizing on having people wound up against other people. And that I think is kind of creating more of a barrier in the workplace for people to stop and listen and understand each other's perspectives before jumping into a, um, a labeling or putting somebody in a bucket, you know, and, and deciding that that's somebody's an enemy because of what their political party has told them is making somebody an enemy. Right. And, and so I think that um, we still have some big growth to do as, as people from, from that perspective. So, so there is, um, so for the society and on the humanitarian level, it's good to have that uh, gender equity and diversity inclusion. Right. But for a corporation, what do you see has been, the positive impact on their bottom line, on their on their uh, balance sheet, when there yeah. is this going on, so that would speak more to you know um, corporate America and to the Fortune 500, who wants to make sure that they have good reporting to to their shareholders every time they have to report, right? So, what has been that you know concretely? helps a corporation when that problem is solved, when gender equity is there and diversity inclusion is there. Yeah. So a couple of things, Um, you know, first of all, there's a lot of literature being built on this right now where there there are a ton of studies that are showing um, the impact to innovation that we're more innovative when we have more diverse minds at the table coming up with ideas that um, having more equity, um, gender equity and balance on your board has a better impact on um, your financial results, um, certainly representing your um, customer base more fully, mm-hmm. you know, right. that, you know, you, you seeing yourself reflected in products. I mean, there's a book out called Invisible Women that talks about what happens when women aren't at the table making decisions on the products that we choose, the way we design cities. Um, you know, I, I sit on a, a project in my community <clears throat> where we were designing the, the pool and a lot of the architects and design firms were all white men. And it's amazing that one of the designs came back and it had the men's bathroom 
and change area larger than the women's at the community pool. And I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, do do we know who uses the pool? Because I use the pool and I know, know what it was like to bring kids to the pool. And I didn't sense that the men's change room was too small. So, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those interesting things. And you think about how many things in society have been designed this way, you know, seatbelts kill women and young and children. And why? Well, because the average human is male. If you take an average of all the weights and, you know, height and and everything else, the average in that is still a man. So, you know, we we get, we get dropped off the spectrum on a lot of those, you know, how, how drugs are designed and, and, you know, even think of the average dose of a, of a Tylenol, right. You know, I take the same one as my husband does really. And he's, you know, probably got 50 pounds on me at least. So that doesn't make sense. Right. But that's been, you know, and, and my big worry is Silicon Valley because by not having women at the table designing artificial intelligence and designing the robots and designing the tech that we're going to live by, what is being lost? You know, what's interesting with what you're saying is uh, years back, I, I read an article uh, on how, how it is that with feminine products, sanitary products, contraceptives, not there's what, just a few women, if not all majority men that are designing this for women. So uh, it's just mind boggling, you know, come, come to think of it. But yes, having that, you know, for a corporation, knowing your consumer, considering half of the world's population, half of the world's consumer are more than half are women, right? Yeah. Uh, so so those are a very good point. He also touched on uh, the pandemic. And, and as we know, there's a lot of people that have been forced uh, out of work because of, um, because of the shutdown and, and, and this pandemic. Um, more so with uh, women of color, right? So... Yeah. Um, do you see this more as a temporary setback or do you see it uh, moving beyond post-pandemic? Yeah, you know, it's, I don't see how given the science of how viruses work, that this is something that's going to go away um, anytime soon. So I, I think in terms of the, the virus and continuing to spread, I think we definitely have a long curve ahead. Now, you know, we have the technology to protect workers and to get them back to work, but we've chosen to have political, um, a political point of view on, on whether or not we're going to use that technology. And, and, uh, and that's a little problematic because I do think that that is once again, disproportionately harming women and women of color in how that has been sort of presented to us as a society, as a, as the choice that it is. Um, I, I give the example of my husband was recently in Florida traveling and nobody is wearing a mask and nobody is, you know, very few people are vaccinated. Of course they have a big outbreak right now. And so you think about if the message is choice and, um, you know, choosing to protect, choosing to protect yourself or not using that information, but nobody's using it, then, you know, I, I just, I don't know, I have to, I have to question if we're doing our population a service by sending out the political messages that we're sending out. Now, you know, so, Barry, so, Hannah, 
We so just talked about not, not having women represented at that table, especially women of color. And if you look at Congress and you look at, you know, local government and you look at state government, women are not there. And we are not in the room when these decisions get made and these petty battles break out about, you know, partisanship. So and and I'm just as much at fault there because have I, you know, decided that I want to run for office? Absolutely not. But right. without having women there, like I'm part of the problem because I'm, you know, saying that there are no women there and yet not willing to embark on that career. So you think that uh, with with the women, the uh, women of color being out of work because of uh, the pandemic, you still see that spilling over way past um, uh, post pandemic, mm-hmm. you think? There's a couple of forces at play, right? One of them is, um, are we going to continue to have a slowed economy because of, you know, of, of the persistence of the virus? Or are we going to get it together and be able to be fully open and fully operational because we're protecting people? So that's that's part one. Part two is, um, you know, the, what I'm seeing in the market in terms of labor right now is a big mismatch you know, it, it, there are some industries that cannot fill seats fast enough. There are more jobs than there are people that can fill those seats. But in, uh-huh. and other and yet unemployment is high. So right. when you look at that, you, you have to say that we have somehow allowed our workforce, our labor force to end up with the wrong skills and, and, and not, non-mobility and inability to move across the market. So, um yeah, you know, and, and I, I think it's I think it's a big problem. I think schools need to address it. I think that um, schools need to be doing a better job of serving underserved communities. And um, and I, I know that that, uh, you know, that traditionally hasn't been the case. I think that the the entire way we re- we uh, recruit students and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, but I, these are these are big systemic issues that I think right. um, are kind of next on our on our list of to solve. Right. <laughs> One of the reasons why I don't really watch um, news, <laughs> TV for that matter. Uh, so one time working out, um, news was was on, right? And it was the same thing that they're playing, but it's so sad. Uh, going back to what you're saying on, uh, there's all these jobs, but not a whole lot of people raising their hands. And all these corporations are are putting out like incentives, you know, 1500 2000 to be the cook, to be the, the server, uh, to be the cleaner, to be the housekeeper uh, of this lodging place or what have you. It's just one after the other of those messages uh, that are out there. The jobs are there, right? But why is it that, <laughs> that uh, with unemployment rates still high, that there's not a lot of takers? So, um, so I think... Uh, it may shift when the um, unemployment runs out. I think there's still some legacy social programs and coverage and, and unemployment that's preventing some people from working. I, I heard somewhere that that represents about 40% of the people who are out, not all, but, but, you know, 35 or 40%. And then, you know, yeah, there's definitely people who are out because they're, they're um, nervous about being face-to-face with customers or being in a workplace um, where people aren't vaccinated and masked. So I think that there's there's some of that. And then I do think that there is some, um, you know, some real skills mismatch stuff, which has a lot to do with just legacy systematic stuff that I think- That's that giving a lot of credit to our workers out there. <laughs> I think there's a lot that are just 
freaking lazy. You know what I mean? Like, hey, it's time to get out of your couch and work, people. But uh, but yeah, that's a very good <laughs> that's a very good angle uh, that you brought. Um, I wasn't really thinking of that, but you know what? You're right. There are some that are truly um, scared and um, skeptical of 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 the virus and the Delta and, and what have you, right? So thank you yeah. for, for, for enlightening me on that angle. <laughs> um, but uh, so now let's talk about corporations that are out there that understand now that um, having diversity would, ha- would leverage talent that's out there, that they're not just going to confine themselves with a certain demographic, right? Um, what do you think are the major steps that a corporation need to do? So what are the baby steps? What are the first steps that one need to do towards that movement of having um, uh, the gender equity? Yeah, yeah, great. Well, the first ones I would say is number one, envision what you mean when you say diversity, because in many cases, um, companies don't have a clear view of what that means. And, and, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, we want to see different colored faces and different genders, but we don't want anybody to behave any differently or bring any of that. Don't change anything, you know, and, and that can be problematic because, um, then when you start bringing people in and they start to give their opinion and it's different, then we have a problem, right? Then we have, you know, some conflict that they didn't expect. So part of it is we, we work with companies to help envision equity and inclusion and what that means for their organization. And then the second thing is, is to understand the current state and do some deep analysis, you know, under, understand where the gaps are and where the opportunities are in the organization, where the exact barriers are for your organization. Because what we've seen is a lot of companies are just chucking spaghetti at the wall. And hoping that, you know, that, that they'll, they'll be a catch all. Oh, we're going to do blind resumes. That'll solve our problem. But if your, your problem isn't in the recruiting pipeline, then, you know, why are you solving or, or some, some want to do unconscious bias training for the whole company? Well, if, if it's not the whole company that needs it, you're going to irritate the people who already know and you're going to, and then there are the folks who haven't got a clue that may be like, why am I even doing this? So, so you absolutely need to understand the current state and then identify your gaps. And then the third thing that generally happens is we need to train leaders and include and embed these inclusion skills in leadership so that leaders are creating that inclusive environment and that they've shored up their skills. And I, I like to say it this way that, you know, we've only in the last five to 10 years really been um, concerned as companies and starting to put right. this into the strategic, you know, and guess what? Some of these leaders got there and were rewarded and incentivized their entire careers for and, and didn't have these skills as one of the, the important factors, one of the competencies. So if them being clueless about inclusion and about different cultures and about di- even gender interactions is kind of not their fault. And now we're slapping them hard if they make a mistake and, and putting labels on it like you're sexist or you're racist. And that's not really fair. So what we really need to do is assess what is the landscape? What are your skills? And get leaders to embark upon this. And it has to be part of their, you know, it has to be something that's recognized as important so that they'll invest in it. But then when you start to show people that this is something we care about and we're going to measure it in you, well, then people are motivated to, you know, step it up. And then we've got to train them. We've got to show them how to do this in a safe way so that they don't get in trouble when they make mistakes. 
So Kelly, uh, for our audience out there that wants to know more about, about your consultancy group, how can they reach you? Yeah, they can check us out at orangegroveconsulting.com. Uh, and they can, our book is on Amazon and at Walmart and everywhere else. It's called The Next Smart Step, How to Overcome Gender Stereotypes and Build a Stronger Organization. Well, Kelly, that concludes our show. Um, more power to what you do. Again, half of the world's population are women. So what you do uh, really uh, make a difference. So, so thank you. And um, I'm wishing you. you continued success. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Um, for our audience out there, this is the time for you to pick up your phone, get your phone, and share this episode to, to anyone that you think would benefit from this program. And for all the dreamers out there, keep believing. You got this. Till next time.